So yes, uh, again, you can uh, you can record me, and uh, and that, that I can't give permission to for these things to go out, but that's okay. And so anyway, uh, yeah, it's kind of fun sitting around a kitchen table and talking about important things for a change. We're coming up. We used to do a lot of visiting, but you know, I haven't done it in a lot of years with that sort of thing. So we've been talking. Uh, I guess we were. Uh, before we turn the recorder off, and then we were talking about uh, humility and uh, and submission to the order of things, because we've been talking about suffering and that we're in this condition. But uh, without going through all that, because we talked about that, there's a couple of things I think any Christian can think about. And uh, first is, uh, if you look at Calvary, you have two thieves crucified with our Lord. On either side of them, and you have the good thief Saint Dismas and the bad thief. They have exactly, exactly the same punishment. They're both nailed to a cross, but one turns him into a saint, and the other goes to hell. And we should think about that. They both had to suffer. They're suffering exactly the same thing. But in the case of Saint Dismas. He's a saint. Why are there two ends with the same suffering? As soon as you think about it, it's obvious. It depends on what's in the person's heart. Are you going to submit to what we've been talking about with humility? Are we going to submit to God's providence? Anytime we rebel against anything that, that we find painful, whether from other men or from things, then we're rebelling against His providence. So, uh, am I, uh, is it correct to say, Father, you're saying it's in God's providence that these guys get nailed to a cross? It sure is. St. Dismas even explains it. He says, you know, because he, he, he gets on the case of the other one saying, why are you reviling him? We deserve this. He's, this man's done nothing, but this is the punishment we deserve. Because he recognizes that. But there's something one should think about, too, I think. What if he hadn't been caught and crucified? What likely would have happened to that man? It's a general rule that people kind of die as they live. Here's a thief, a guy that admits he deserves to be crucified. If he hadn't been caught, he would have probably died in a bad way. He wouldn't have come to know our Lord, most likely. I mean, we're talking about what ifs. But it's, it's, that's an important one to reflect on. He would have probably gone to hell if he hadn't been crucified. God will use whatever it takes to get us to heaven. And that's the point of suffering. Right there you can see it. God sent him that to be crucified because that's what Dismas needed to become Saint Dismas. And there was no other way probably for that person. And so it's actually the love of God that permitted that to happen. And that sounds harsh, but that only sounds harsh if, we're, if we don't look at eternity and don't look at what our sins are and don't look at who God is and don't look at who we are, which is the whole thing we're going back to humility. But he was being humble right then. We deserve this. Because he knew who he was and he knew he deserved it. And the other guy's cussing the one of out. Why don't you do this? Because the other guy's like all of us are when we're mad, when we're hurting. Why are, you let, why are you letting me suffer like this, God? God wanted the same thing for that thief, too. 
God did not want the, God desires the salvation of all men. It'd be heretical to deny it. But not all men are saved. But the people that take the suffering that God sends them, I mean, that's the whole point of it. I'm going to say some other things, but I found a very fascinating little passage here, if I can find it again. And uh, Right here, it's from Edward Lean in a great book called Why the Cross. There is throughout history a melancholy sameness in the reactions of mankind signed for redemption to the Redeemer who would answer its appeal. As it is Jesus Christ, yesterday and today and the same forever. So man looking for salvation is yesterday and today and the same forever. The one thing fallen man desires to know is how to live his life on earth so as to be happy. This is the very thing that Jesus desires to let him know. And yet, as was prophesied by Simeon, the Redeemer ever remains a sign to be contradicted. The sick world, like a patient in the delirium of fever, is forever turning on its physician and submitting him to violence and maltreatment. It is because the problem of happiness is so intimately bound up with the problem of pain. There is no purification of the soul without suffering. Through purification, the soul reaches that close intimacy with God and that vision of him which make the soul happy. When men are told that the beatitude they seek is conditioned by suffering, they find the doctrine a hard saying. They'll have none of it and will continue to indulge the hope that they can reach the goal of human desire by another way. Because everybody wants to be happy. That's why people do the things they do. But in order to be happy... Even even the most fantastically wealthy people in the world can't get what they want with all their wealth and power. But the saints get what they want because they want what they get. And if you want what you get, then you get what you want because you want what's best for you because God gives you what's best for you. St. Dismas got what was best for him, which is to be nailed on the cross next to our Lord. That was the very best thing that God could ever give him. And he did, he did give it to him. And it made him a saint. God wants to give us what is best. What makes it hard for us is because we're fallen and we have all these things, we talked about all that, but the huge damage we have from original sin, our own actual sin, and we don't see it clearly. Like, if God's permitting this, it must be for a reason. And I don't have to understand the reason, but I know it must be best from the point of view of God. That's why St. Maximilian Kolbe could be happy in Auschwitz. He was happy. It didn't mean he wasn't suffering. But they're not opposing each other. He's doing God's will. And this is easy. Like I've, t- I've mentioned this before, this actually just happened a couple of weeks ago. Uh, a gal that I'm very fond of, she calls me every year or so, and uh, and was talking to me about some spiritual things, just kind of getting me update on her family and just chatting away. And she was something about, uh, you know, I don't see how you can be happy when you're suffering. I said, oh, and you've had nine babies. And she started laughing. You know? I said, Why should, I don't need to sp- expa- explain that to women and, and uh, that have had babies. And she started laughing. She said, I guess you're right. I go, yeah, you were happy to have those babies and it cost you some suffering. I don't, you know, I'm, I may be a guy and a priest, but I'm not that dumb. And uh, and just remind yourself of those things. St. Maximilian Colby was doing God's will. He's happy in Auschwitz. You can be happy in Auschwitz. There's no obstacle to that. They can't bind our will doesn't mean you're not suffering. Look at the lives of the saints. If you read a decent life of the saint, um, what's it full of? 
crosses and contradictions and abuse and and uh, and bad treatment and being accused of all kinds of things they didn't do and on and on and on and on and on and that it's a certain sign that they're on the right path. Saint Saint uh, Louis de Montfort used to get worried if he, if the things weren't if things were going well in his life he'd say oh no cross what a cross no cross what a cross he'd start getting worried he wasn't in the will of God because he couldn't find the cross in his life. And he'd actually sit there and get really distressed, like, I must not be doing what God wants me to do because he hasn't sent me a cross. Very, very clear examples from the saints. Um, and I want to read you something else here. Well, no, yeah, well, I will read this right here. Here's the words of our Lord. All Christians can agree on this. So I'm in chapter 9 of St. Luke's Gospel. Verse 23. And he said to all, this is our Lord. I want to read this. And he said to all, all, as in all, uh, that means everyone. This is God. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. So St. Luke has details that's important. He said to all that we have to take up, if we want to follow him, we have to take up our cross daily. Daily. Not just when it's convenient and we'll leave it over here in the corner. He said to all. That's our Lord saying that to all. You know, because what people think, and it's because of the fall, and then we've grown in America. In America, it's it, we've it's there's a really an illusion at this in the time of history where we where we've been living, where everything is just soft and and cheap or or comfortable and tastes just right, and, and 15 flavors of this and all that. So we've grown up in the most luxurious, soft lifestyle mankind's known you know as a group of people so that's added to the problem for people to see this <clears throat> that if they're suffering there must be something wrong there must be a pill for this or whatever so people get the slightest little owie they want a pill they want some pain relief they want this that or the other thing but suffering and happiness are not opposed to each other and people know this at a, a, a you know, if it's a football game and they're playing, or any game they're playing, if they just mow the other person down, the other team down, it's not that challenging of a game. It's not a great a thing as if it's really a challenging thing. They have to fight harder to win that thing, you know. Or riding the rough stuff, anything they're doing, you know. Their goals, if they set goals and they're just ridiculous little goals, like, you know, uh, you know, instead of really challenging goals, everybody knows there's a difference. They feel, they feel a, a, a happiness when they accomplish something that's challenging. People know that. They instinctively do. And so they know that suffering and happiness aren't opposed. Even in, at the level of sport, they know that. So, But in their minds, so to speak, they, they, they try to make a deal with God. This is super, super common. And it's not Americans, it's everybody. The Jews were guilty of this, but it's, it's a human condition. It's basically, let's make a deal. You know, I, I want a religion where you make the demands on me that I'm willing to accept, but I'm going to hold this part back. Whatever this part is, it depends on you. Like, this is me and that. So you see this, like, to, 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 to narrow it down to Catholicism, it's not unusual to meet somebody where it's pretty clear they have a vocation to a religious life or priesthood. But they don't really want to go do that. So they're going to make a deal with God, I'll have one of my kids. Well, you know, excuse me, uh, that's not your place. So, like, they're going to give a tithe of their children, and that'll make up for me not doing this. It's actually not, not uncommon. They usually aren't very blunt about it, and you have to figure it out as the priest. 
Um, but you realize that you're all, oh, that's what's actually going on here. And then the poor kid's tormented, you know, because they don't have a vocation. And sometimes you'll meet it from the kid himself, and you go, what's going on? You talk to him about his parents. You go, well, I'm, I'm sorry, your parents aren't God. Vocations come from God. So the parents aren't raising the kid for God. They're raising the kid as as a tithe. And uh, it's not unusual. I'm sorry, it's just not unusual. The kid is a tithe. Um, and so... God isn't asking us to do anything, which sounds really funny because I'm a priest and give you all these rules. God's asking us to be something, not to do something. And like when he says, Master, what must I do to find eternal life? He's asked that twice, once by a lawyer and once by the young man. He says, well, if you wish to be perfect, go sell all you have and then come follow me. Be something. The lawyer, he says, well, what do you read in the law? What are the greatest commandments? He doesn't answer directly. And they said, love the Lord your God with your whole heart, mind, soul, and love your neighbors yourself. He says, good, do this. In other words, that, you know, like do, but you be something. What are you supposed to be? You're supposed to be holy. You're supposed to become like Christ. Y'all are women, so, you know, model, uh, you know, model our lady for women. Guys model Christ, but I mean, it's the same thing. Uh, it's just a different emphasis. Uh, but, but, uh, it's because, you know, a Catholic woman should give refractions of Our Lady in some way, capture that in some way. The more the more she becomes who she's supposed to be, the more there's some sort of aspect of Our Lady that people will see in her. And the more uh, a Catholic man is is walking with Our Lord, the more there's some aspect because we can't capture them all. There's some aspect, you know, and it's specified in a little different way. The way a priestly charity comes out different depending on the priest, you know. Uh, insofar as they're, they're walking the walk. But, uh, he's asking us to be something. So, you know, and if we love him, then he says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So it's the love that we're supposed to do. But to do that, we have to quit being in love, have this rapturous love affair with ourselves that comes from original sin and, and, and be humble and see that that is God and I'm not. That's what St. Francis at night, he, he, he lay out at night thinking, who is God and who is Francis? He'd pray at night. Who is God? And they think it's who is Francis. Go back and forth between everything and nothing, basically, in that way. And he's, what a great saint. But the temptation is to do tribute to God for people that want to have a relationship with him and not just completely strike out on their own. They'll do tribute, you know. So I'll give him tribute. I'll go to Mass. I'll do the, I'll do the novena. I'll put my money down and then you give me what I want. But, you know, this part is mine, you know. And so they keep that part of their heart or that part of their life or that part of their behavior. And so they may be the pillar of the community at the Mass, but if their heart isn't all in, then what was it all for? And and we're, we're, believe me, that's what this big sifting out. It, we're going to get to the bottom of this, not by us, but I mean God is. That's what this is. This is a big, big sifting out. Do you love me more than these? Like he asked St. Peter, he's asking each one of us. And what is these? Well, the golden calf with the shot, these different things, you know, all these different things are being proposed to us all the time. Do you love me more than these? And it's going to get more and more interesting because we're living like in Roman times. You know, we're going, we're in this persecution and it just hasn't got completely bloody yet, but it will. Don't worry. They'll be there. So, so, uh, to go back then, everybody that knows much about the interior life knows that suffering and happiness are related absolutely because anybody has heard of the dark nights. What do they think these are? You know, a carnival ride. Uh, so you have the dark night of of of, of the senses and the dark night of, uh, of the soul, the spirit. So you have one where it's purifying the senses, and it's 
it's pain. It's terrible pain. And it might be the worst pain they have till they get to the next dark night, which is way worse. And uh, But why? Because God uses the cross to make us fit for heaven. That's the whole point of suffering, if we see it correctly. So all these things, uh, you know, that we talked about and, and, and led up to, that's really what it's getting to the cross, is to make us fit for heaven. Just like it did with St. Dismas all at once. That's what it's to do. The cross, it, it's adjusting, correcting, and getting rid of these things. We can look at it like that. It's making us fit for heaven. And the more, the more we pick up our cross and follow daily, uh, and the more we're conformed to our cross, which is our cross, and it's custom made for each one of us for the things we need, the more we become like our Lord, the more fit we become for heaven, and the more our prayers, are, you know, are, can lift other people up, the more our sufferings lift other people up, because we become more and more like Christ in that. In a certain sense, at the judgment, and this is just a poetic way of looking at it. They're looking for the wounds, you know. You know, do you look like our Lord? And that's it. That's in a certain sense. If this makes sense. So those are the kind of things I think I want to say about suffering like that. Now, I have other things related to that I do want to talk about. And I just have to look at some of the things I... To put some of the stuff that we're in into context, we go back and look at our Lord, but in order to do that, we'll put that into context. So after the fall, you know, Adam and Eve, in the Book of Wisdom, it talks about centuries. They do centuries of, of penance because people did live a, a lot longer, especially before the flood. But even after the flood for a while, like Abraham, I think, lived 200 years or something. But it's genetic decay over time. You just now that we, we get, you get more and more mess in your in your genome, you can't live that long. But uh, some people can. Uh, they're still alive. Like Father Father Enoch and Father Elijah are still alive. So Enoch must be roughly five thousand years old because he's Moses' great grandpa, and Elijah must be about two thousand three thousand years old give or take, because he's uh, the prophet Elijah. They're both in paradise right now, and they're the two witnesses that that go against the Antichrist in the same way Moses and Aaron went against the Pharaoh, but we're getting to the end instead of the beginning. So they, they fall, and the whole world is uh, wrapped in darkness, really. You have this big mess, and, and you know, uh, Cain religion, etc., and at the Tower of Babel, that's the last world ruler. You have Nimrod r- r- ruling everything, and God comes down. They're building the tower to get so it'd be high enough that if it floods again, they could ride it out. You know, Josephus tells us this. I mean, it's, that's pretty arrogant. Like God couldn't throw some more water in the thing. You know, but they, so they knew what they were up to, and uh, so he scatters the, the nations of man and scatters their languages, and uh, because Noah. And I've mentioned this many times. It's very, very interesting that in two places in the ancient commentaries, the rabbis say that the reason for the flood was when men began writing marriage contracts uh, for men to men and men to animals. So, uh, so here we are again. Anyway, uh, 
So I do want to say that about Noah. And you also say that Noah preached for a century, and he's building this ark, and everybody's laughing at him, making fun of him. So talk about getting segregated, mocked, and so forth, you know. You think being an, an anti-vaxxer, an anti-this or anti-that, it's nothing. Noah did that. You know, that's how his whole family got treated. And then when the flood came, they were it. All those people knew. And they even watched the animals get on board. And so by that time, it would have been very, very interesting, but then it's closed. And there's nothing, you know, and here come the, here, then it starts to rain, and they go, oh, he was telling the truth, but it was too late. Couldn't get on board. And then they had to be inside listening to the screaming and yelling until the rain's drawn that off. And off they floated. You know, you think about that. And then starting all over again. Then we go to Nimrod, then to Abraham. I could say a lot more, but I've said it elsewhere. And Abraham is called out of Ur of the Chaldees. So that's that's Iraq. And he's called out of uh, a polytheistic pagan society. God speaks to him. And he has to leave. That's significant. Typically, when God wants to do something with people, he has them leave their people. Why? Because it's so hard to be, live with your people and be different. That people end up falling into it. So it's very, very, very typical that God will pull them out. And you can see that all over the place in the scriptures and in the lives of the saints and all that. They go somewhere else. And people, you know, so off Abraham goes. And he's going to make a great people out of him. And pert near the first thing that happens to him, you know, pretty close to it is they get to be slaves for four centuries under Pharaoh. So God takes them down there and uh, they, they become slaves and then he raises up Moses to lead them out. And we know the story but it's there's interesting things about it because he's asking them to go out and uh, and so they, they do the different uh, plagues which are, are judgments on the Egyptian gods. We can see that, I think Exodus 10, 12, but I have to flip through the Bible, but he talks about the God. But, you know, it's like the Nile, they worship the Nile and it turns into blood. And they have this frog God, you know, and, and everything gets frogs, and et cetera, et cetera. The sun is one of their gods, uh, the eldest son. And so they have all these different gods and there's judgments on them all, showing our God is bigger than your God. And our sources are greater. Because for quite a while... Jamnus and Jaffrus, the two the two magicians, can keep up with them. But then after a while, they can't keep up anymore, you know, And because Moses would do something, and then they'd do it. And Moses would do something, and they'd do it. And Pharaoh, Pharaoh uh, knows what's right, but it talks about him hardening his heart, because he doesn't want to know the truth. See, one of the sins against the Holy Ghost is denying the known truth. If you deny the known truth, your mind was made to know the truth. It's one thing to deny truth that you don't know. It's not the known truth, because then you just have an argument and you're just ignorant. We're all ignorant just on different subjects. That's not that's not that big of a deal. That's what education is about and preaching and so forth, is to try not to be ignorant. But it's a whole different thing when you know something's true and then you deny it. So then you just poked out your eyes intellectually, so to speak. And we see this going on all over the place. This is why a lot of this stuff doesn't make sense. We're in this operation error, but we'll get to that. So that's Pharaoh. And finally, the judgment, and they, they get a flee. Now that is super, super interesting, because Exodus, you know, we could talk about this. 
I started writing a mission on it at one point in time because I thought it would be, and I ended up writing one on Fatima. But I've always thought a mission on Exodus would be so interesting because we're living it and we're going to live it in a more explicit way here coming up real soon. But uh, it's it's such an important, there's so many important things in that whole that whole epic drama because they lead them out of Egypt. What are they going to go do? They've got to go offer sacrifice. Well, why are they? Why do they got to go sacrifice things? That, you know, and what are they going to sacrifice? So, you know, bulls and rams and, and goats. Why is that? Well, what do you suppose? You know, uh, because those are gods in Egypt. So if you want, and and, and the Israelis may have been fall. You know, the Hebrew people have been falling into eat that good old time Egyptian religion, right? So we're going to get out of there and we're going to kill them. You know, like that way. Is they're going to offer sacrifice? And he goes up on the mountain, and, and God gives him the Ten Commandments, etc. And what do these people do? I mean, well, they have a high priest. The high priest is also is what we call a pope, but it's the same office exactly, because it's the one church. God's church is one church. It segues from one thing into the other word. It's fulfilled from promise to fulfillment. But Aaron uh, builds this golden calf and then leads him in the worship of it. And uh, and down down they come, and so he gets the, the Levites rise up, and then they kill the idolaters and so forth, and then God makes them the priests instead of the firstborn sons, and so all of a sudden you have this complicated thing where you have this priesthood there that that's that's different, and you have all these rules, gazillions of rules, trozillions of rules, and it, the rules are really to separate the people off. From all kinds of stuff, because they have, you, you took, you basically took the boy out of Egypt, but didn't take Egypt out of the boy is their problem. So, and, and so now we're going to get it out of them by the discipline of all these rules that, 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 that they put on them. So all that Jewish rule stuff is a direct result of the golden calf, and it's imposed on them right then. They have the manna, they're being fed by manna from the desert. This is super interesting since we're all I, I've got something I read, wrote a few years ago in, uh, here in this Bible, and I just pulled my stack of papers out of my Bible, and let me find it here, because we're all, this is just a commentary on the manna. I got this idea from Steve Wood, but I, you know, he, he can't take the blame for what I did with it, but I got the idea from it. But it says in chapter 6 of Exodus, the Lord says to Moses, I will rain bread from heaven for you. The people should go out and gather a day's portion every day. On the sixth day when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So you have, uh, so on Fridays there's twice as much as, uh, as the other days because you're not, you're not going to get, they don't gather anything on, on Saturday. Well, <clears throat> so they, they, uh, it says it's like coriander seed. They gather, uh, an omer every day on in two omers. What's an omer? It, the, according to the Oxford Biblical Studies, it's about two point one quarts. So every day they get each Israelite gets two point one quarts of manna, except on Fridays where they get twice twice as much. And it tasted like whatever they wanted to taste like, kind of. Because God has really taken care of them, you know. And and so uh, and then so how many people leave in the Exodus? Well, numbers is called numbers because they number the people, and you have the, the, the men from twenty years and up were six thousand six hundred three thousand five hundred fifty men. So that's the twenty year olds on up of men. So if you have that, 
So if you assumed only one woman for each adult man, and of course that's not how it worked. They could have way more. But if you just made an American family, uh, so you have uh, one woman and two kids, you get about two and a half million people. So that's it's going to be more than that. But that's how many people. So we're doing a very, very conservative estimate. And uh, so we got that number of people. And there's a lot of other things I could... Uh, I could talk on that, but I'll just uh, I'll just skip all that because I did that. So um, you get two and a half million people, and, uh, and Sunday, Thursday they get an Omer man a day. On Friday they get two Omers. Saturday no no mana falls. So I did the calculations in the terms of grain trucks. If you load each grain truck with 450 bushels of mana, then every day enough mana would fall to fill 365 grain trucks. Now, they're about 20 foot long, so that whole line drive, drove up. If you put a five-foot space between the rear bumper of one truck and the front bumper of the next, that line of grain trucks would be one, one and three-quarters mile long. And on Friday, it's three and a half miles long. No no trucks on Saturday. So every week, you have a one and three-quarter mile long truck line of grain trucks pulling up with 450 bushels of manna in each one of them. And then on Friday, a three and a half mile long, and that goes on every day of the week except Saturdays for 40 years. That's how God is feeding them. It's just astronomical. I started to do the calculations on water, but I was trying to figure, like, what can we compare it to? Because I actually looked up desert requirements for sheep. I started doing all these calculations and people, you know, it's just astronomical. I can't... You know, one day I'm going to actually sit down because it's hard to find uh, enough stuff. But I looked up, you know, you, you kind of you're on the internet to your eyes crossed looking this weird stuff up. I mean, we're a sheep, but I never thought, you know, who knows deserts? So you're looking like, what would it be? And what's the temperature? You're going through and all this stuff, you know. So you're on different sites, and I will get that one of these days, and then figure out what kind of equivalence, you know, to where a person can visualize it. So I have not done that yet. But you think of it like when he hits water from that rock, because he wouldn't. That rock would, uh, the, the water would gush out and take care of him. You see, the kind of water that, that, so just, but the manna, you can do that one pretty easy. But you think of that many grain trucks, and we can all picture it, you know. If you're in town, that, that it might not be quite so clear to people. But when you think of that many grain trucks, 365 of them, uh, you know, it, it's just astronaut. So, and that, it'd be way more than that. This is like the, the, the Planned Parenthood size families. So it's going to be way more. So that's the minimum. That's a minimum of what the miracle is. So that's the exodus. And what is that? All? That all points towards the Blessed Sacrament. So, in fact, this is Steve Wood. It's, it's a great thing. And I, I used his talk, not with this, but in different ways. But uh, you, you can say to a Bible Christian, if there's something greater than that isn't actually going on in, in your services, greater than the Moses miracle, then you've flipped everything on its head because Moses is greater than our Lord. You know? But, and you can't, because it goes from promise to film, to lesser to the greater. So, you know, you gotta have the Blessed Sacrament. I mean, John 6 is about the Blessed Sacrament. But anyway, that's why when he does the bread miracles, he does two times and multiplies loaves and fishes. So they knew he's, Moses told him, Genesis chapter 8, or Deuteronomy chapter 18, that there's going to be a prophet like unto him and to listen to him. Well, they know he's a prophet like unto him because he's doing these bread miracles. Okay, wait a minute. You know, so that, that's why I say, what is it that you do? 
you know, because what do you do? And then he starts talking about the Blessed Sacrament at that point in time. It's not symbolic. He's actually telling them. Because the people understand that's why they go away. And he goes, go, oh, wait, sorry, you must be Catholics. I'm sorry, I'm completely wrong. You know, this is just symbolic. He, he, you know, he lets them go. Uh, but anyway, so you have, you have the bread miracles. You have the, the prototype uh, bad priests. So and I'm not talking about Aaron here because we just we'll, we'll come to that. Um, but but you look at Dor, Dathan, Kor, and Abiron, where they rebel against Aaron and Moses. Like, who are you speaking for God? So these are priests, and they step back, and they're going to do their own thing. And then Moses prays, you know, and the earth opens up, and they fall alive down into hell. And what's interesting is some of the sons of Kor didn't fall in there. And when you read, it turns out they were held in the air when it opened up. That's why there's some psalms from the sons of Kor and all that. So they didn't all fall because they didn't agree with the schism of their father. So some of the family didn't fall in, but the whole earth opened up in their tents and everything. And the ones that didn't agree were left, and then it closed again, and they went into hell. But I mean, that's the prototype, bad, rebelling, schismatic, heretical priest that we see over and over and over and over and over and over. So you have that right there, right from the very, you know, right there in Genesis. You have the high priest doing spectacularly, uh, you know, building idols and and leading the people in the worship of them. You have the prototype feminism, which is Numbers 5, when Miriam, that's Moses' sister, who are you to speak for? You know, and she, she goes out and said, bam, she gets struck with leprosy, and if Moses hadn't, hadn't prayed for her, she'd have been toast, because... So you have the feminist uh, uprising. All these different things are all in the Exodus as they're going through there. What's super interesting is out of those 603,550 men of age 20 and up that left Egypt with Moses and Aaron, how many of them got to the Promised Land? Two. Two. Joshua and Caleb. No one else. Because they all rebelled against God in various and sundry ways. Only two. Even Moses and Aaron didn't get to sit there because they were disobedient. God told them to speak to the rock the next time, and and, and the water would come out. And instead, He whacked on it with His with His, uh, his stick a couple times. And now, God God means what He says. You know, I said I didn't tell you to whack on it. You already whacked on it. Uh, you don't need to. It's very symbolic in that the first time hitting them and the second time speaking, because the rock is Christ. Saint Paul tells us so. It's symbolic of Christ, and so Christ is crucified once. And then after that, you, when the, the priest speaks, then the blessed sacrament comes. And he can only be it's crucified once for all, and then it's a representation of it. So it's symbolic of the holy sacrifice of the mass in that way. The priest, nobody's nailing Christ to the cross again. You know, which is this weird accusation people say that's just ridiculous. Anyway, so the Exodus, and they get there. But and they're going through things. They they have all the problems with ba- Balaam trying to trying to curse him and he can't. So he tells the kings, "Here's how you can take these guys out: is uh, basically you corrupt them with your your women uh, and uh, the pagan women, and that'll get them into this this Catholic worship." So they did, and it was sexual perversions. I'm not going to go into it. When I was reading Saint Jerome, I was going, "Well, I can see why this wasn't translated from Latin." And I was also like, "Well, I didn't know the fathers wrote like this." <laughs> Because he's saying exactly what some of the stuff in there was about, you know, because St. Jerome lived in the Middle East and he'd seen statues of some of these, like Baalfagor and stuff, and you're like, okay, wait a minute, you know, I don't, <laughs> like, whoa. So anyway, uh, so you have the same kind of things where they're, they're being, they corrupt and turn away, 
and, and turn to sexual corruption and turn away from the true God into this. They're whining to go back to Egypt. They're whining for their gods, etc. So they're being disciplined. They have to keep killing the Egyptian gods and eating them, and they can't eat. They're longing for the flesh pots of Egypt. That's pig. So they, they want to go back and eat the pig that the Egyptians eat. So that's why they can't eat pig. You know, they have all these these pun. So you can see God is making, so to speak, the punishment fit the crime to try to wean them off of this pagan type stuff. And it doesn't completely work. I mean, it's God, but we have free will. So it's completely it's completely perfect for producing what they're, what He wants, they're the results He wants. But then they don't get them. And then when our Lord does show up, so we're really jumping along. No, I want to say something else. So you also have one of the, some of the rules are like the jubilee year. So you have the you have the sabbatical years and then the jubilee. So sabbatical years every seven years, and then the jubilee is every seven seven. So every fiftieth year it's a jubilee. But in the jubilee year, any slaves have to be freed. The land that you bought from people that, that's theirs, it has to go back to them. All debts have to be forgiven. So it's to, God did that to you. He forgives everything from you, and you're going to do it so it reorders your society every 50 years. And then they weren't keeping the Jubilees. Okay, so they weren't, in spite of all this. So think of all the stuff they've seen, you know. I, I skipped over Sinai because we all know this story. All these different things they've seen. And uh, with the law coming down, all that. Oh, the most important, one of the things to think about in a different way, and then we'll come back to that, the Jubilee, is, of course, when they're backed up against the sea. There's no possible way to get away. Here comes Pharaoh. It's like all the modern tanks in the world rolling in and the chariots. And these people are herding sheep. They're slaves with sheep and and goats. And they're backed against the sea with their little kids. And then all of a sudden, before you know it, there's this unbelievable save. And the army's gone and the the slaves are free. That's how God works. It's the last second. In in the end, our Lebanese Mac at heart will triumph. We have to keep that in mind in the times we're going in, too. But it's a good principle to keep in mind. Don't worry, God has a plan. The plan may be I'm going to die, but guess what? That's going to happen. Nobody gets out of this booger alive. So I might as well, once I get it into my mind, I'm probably going to die. You know, my life is going to end with the death. Oh, okay. Once I've got that right, then I don't have to worry about it. And God will take care of me. And if if this is the time I'm supposed to die, well, then I'll do the best I can. I'll get the graces I need when I need to. Okay, back to this. So when our Lord shows up, and he, and he goes into the synagogue, you know, and he opens the scroll and reads. And he's reading from Isaiah talking about the, the proclaiming the Jubilee year. So he's proclaiming a Jubilee. And so he's coming to do that. And you're like, what's going on here with our Lord? So he's come and, and he does that. And what's the Jubilee again? The, the slaves are supposed to be free. Everything's supposed to come to a balance. And they're like, oh wow. He go, he gets baptized. And the Jordan and the Holy Ghost comes down on visibly as, as the dove and all that. And the Messiah means the anointed one. That's what Christ means. So he's anointed by the Holy Ghost. Oh wow, this is our Messiah. Because the kings, the priests, and the prophets were, anoint, were anointed. I'm jumping over all the kingdom just to get to our Lord. They're all anointed. And uh, all of a sudden, so he's the anointed one. Finally, we've got the Messiah. Because what are they wanting? Because they made the religion into something that it isn't. They're expecting God to do what they want. And what they want is to get rid of this, these Romans and so forth. We've got these pagans over us, just like Pharaoh was over us. And we've got to get rid of these, the, this Caesar Pharaoh. We want him out of our life, and we get to be free, and then we're going to rule, and so we're going to have this great big kingdom, etc., etc. 
And what does our Lord do? He goes right out into the desert and he fights the one he came to free him from, which is the devil. Not at all expected. Not with a, you know, wait a minute. Because the devil is controlling everybody in that way. The Romans are under the same Pharaoh as we are. You know, the, the, the Jews are. You have this, and he goes out, and that's what he does with the, in, in his time in the desert. And then he comes in, and all these people that have been separated out from the community, like lepers, they can't, they can't worship God, they can't go to the temple, they can't go to the synagogue, they can't have a fellowship with other Jews and all that. He, he, he heals them. And they were expecting King, but wait a minute, he's healing, so they can have a relationship with God that wasn't possible before. These unclean people, because all this uncleanness, there's an element, uh, in, to understand the uncleanness, we talked about this a little bit yesterday, but with uncleanness, uh, uh, the world's fallen. So it's cursed, you know, thank you very much to Adam and all that. Well, priests right now can bless it, and that releases it, you know, so we can. But what they did is they were very meticulous to clean, keep keep away from stuff that would spiritually con- contaminate. So that's all these cleanliness laws and all this, that, other thing, not touch the dead and so forth. So it's a ritual uncleanness. But uh, when when unclean things touch our Lord, He doesn't become unclean; they become cleaned. So this power is going out from Him. So the one with the bloody issue, the issue stops. He's not contaminated. She's healed. These, he's raising people from the dead. He's releasing people from all these different bondages. He's having, he's, he's sitting down to meals with people that nobody should be seen with. These people, you know, because he's talking about, he's coming to, but he's releasing the slaves. He's bringing people out of slavery to Satan and bringing them to the Lord. So this is what he's doing. He, and they, they understand what he's doing, but they don't like what he's doing. The leaders understand, many people understand right away. Nicodemus comes in the beginning, this is the beginning of St. John's Gospel. He says, you know, it's chapter 3. He's, he's done the, the miracle at the Cana's first public miracle. He says, we know you're a teacher sent from God. So he's from the Sanhedrin. So they know, for no one could do the thing. So they know he's been sent by God. But they don't want to hear it. Because they have their own idea. We're paying tribute. We're going to do this way and God will approve of what we want to do. That's what we talked about earlier. Which we have the same tendencies too. You know, I, I prayed this novena, Father. He, God didn't answer it. He said, yeah, he did. He said, no. <laughs> you know, he knows what's best. Because uh, God knows what's best for you. It, does, it doesn't mean you don't keep praying the novena. But God is not somebody that we're going to, you know, I don't know. It's not like going into into a store and buying something. You know, I I put my money down. I, I you know I want my product. It's like that's you have the wrong idea. The novena was important to pray, but you have, that doesn't mean God's always going to say yes because God knows what's best, as we know. But what we need to be reminded of at times. So anyway, he's releasing people from all these things. It's getting more and more exasperating to him. So when he comes to town uh, on on Palm Sunday. And they're Hosanna, the king of David. He's riding in. They actually know it's Zechariah that he's riding on an ass in the cult of an ass. And they're laying down Hosanna, the king of David, because it's still not clear to everybody how his kingdom is going to run. But during the course of the week, it becomes perfectly clear. So they weren't fickle. They didn't change from Sunday to Good Friday. What changed is that they realized, oh, this isn't the Messiah we want. Because he comes in like on Monday... 
he comes in and he sees the fig tree. And the fig tree, it says it's not the season for fruit. And he looks at it and he curses it because it doesn't have any fruit after he looks for figs on it. Well, they all know what that meant. He even told a parable about it, but the fig tree is a symbol of Israel. And he's, he talks about the guy coming three years to look for the figs and he doesn't find, you know, manure it, but if not, cut it down. Well, he curses it and the thing shrivels up. He, he's telling them, You're all, y'all are in gen, under judgment. You know, this is not, I'm not finding what we need. This isn't here. I've been coming. I've been doing these things. I'm jumping over a lot of this to go fairly fast through it because we, it, uh, you could sit here all day talking about what he's doing. And so on Good Friday, then, uh, you know, well, they, they, of course, the, the, they've been wanting plotting and scheming to get him for quite a while. And then when he raised Lazarus from the dead, they're so furious, that, you know, let's kill Lazarus, destroy the evidence. And uh, then unexpectedly for the, the leaders, he falls into their hands. When Judas rolls over, there's another priest. And so on Good Friday, <clears throat> in the trial, when they're, when they're yelling at him, crucify him, this is not surprising. You're not who we want. You're not trying to get rid of these Romans. We want them out. We want, this is what we want. We want something like this. We see this all the time. It's easy. It's on any side of the church, but it's really easy to see with different movements in the church, like let's just say the feminists. We want female priests, you know, so they want to make a Jesus in their image. Or the homosexuals, they want this in their image. Or, you know, or all this weird environmental stuff that all, all the way to the top and, and so forth. It's very, very, you know, and the Tradies have the same problems in, a, in different ways. You know, like, what, what are you doing in here, you know, you girl like you with blue hair and a tattoo? Well, gee, I mean, Mary Magdalene would be thrown out of a lot of parishes right now that they think they're so, you know, it's like, hello, hello. You know, there's a difference between not knowing how to dress and hey, sailor, and anybody knows that. And I get it if it's hey, sailor, if, if some girl's coming in there and, you know, that's that's a little bit different where people could legitimately say, no, we're not going to have that here. But if she could be dressed exactly the same, it's not Hey Sailor. She's just a modern girl that doesn't know and wants to know something about our Lord. Well, they throw her out. This is Phariseeism. So it's all over. You can find these same... There's nothing new under the sun. And so we're men. And it's, it's the same kind of phenomenon all the time. Uh, so anyway, that being said, uh, the... Uh, they, they, they definitively reject him. The, the, the high priest just said, oh, you're the Messiah at the trial, and take off his garments and give it to him. I mean, the whole purpose of the church is to prepare for him. Well, here he is. Well, here he got it. We don't want him. And so they get him crucified, and uh, and, uh, in, and Pilate, you have this extraordinary phenomenon where you have the people from the true religion and the priests and leaders of the true religion rejecting their God before him, and you have this pagan who worships idols and devils trying to save him. He's too weak and he doesn't do the right things. But it would talk about a weird symmetry, because you got to keep reminding yourself, this is, this is the pagan that sees this is wrong. You know, he doesn't do the right thing. I'm not excusing him. But it's the pagan. And his wife, you know, so the pagan's wife comes to try to stop things from happening. But the Jews, well, they want no part of it, you know, in and, and, and the, and the leadership like that. And so then, and then they, we have no king but Caesar. You know, you don't, should I crucify your king? We have no king but Caesar. Because he's, he's doing it in a way so that they'll reject, you know, but we have no king but Caesar. Okay, wait a minute. So, I thought God was your king. I thought this was a theocracy and you ran like that. And all of a sudden you picked 
a pagan god because Caesar's also a god. They worship him, you know. That's offering incense to him and all that as a god. So they just shifted gods. It was the apostasy of the of the Jewish nation and its leaders right then. We have no king but Caesar. Book. And his blood be on us and our children. Well, you know, so he cursed. It's a curse. So you get that curse as well. But I mean, they reject him. It's extraordinary. Now, I want to. I'm going to offer some complete opinions, uh, and that's what they are. And I want to underline that they're my opinions. But I, in, the, in the where are we in the passion of the church? I'd like to suggest right now that we're at that point where we have no. Uh, king but Caesar. We have no king but Pfizer. You know, when Our Lady's talking about the heirs of Russia will spread, the, one of the principal religious heirs of Russia in orthodoxy, it's called Caesaropapism, where you have the, 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 the ruler is the Pope. So that orthodox churches are national churches and they line up with the leader. So under Stalin, the, the bishops and priests were KGB officers almost to a man. Uh, they're off. They're, they're agents of the state because the state. If you reject the pope, uh, you have to have somebody on top. You know, everybody has somebody. On top. Like the way it works with the Bible Christians is is their their preachers the pope. Some of the more organized denominations it works like that. But you have to have somebody on top calling the shots because that that's what that's what holds you together. Is there, you know, this is what we believe. This is what we stand for. And uh, so the orthodoxy is you have a government thing that's the Pope. And all of a sudden we see this incredible phenomenon. Like last year, who would have thought that all the bishops would effectively excommunicate everybody? And every American bishop did. They won't excommunicate somebody that needs to be excommunicated, like a Nancy Pelosi. But they excommunicated everybody, including the daily, for being Catholic, because we have to lock everything down. We've never seen this stuff in the history of our church. I mean, this is a church full of martyrs. People have died for much, much less than this. So what we're seeing is a phenomenon very much like Henry VIII or something, not in terms of turning, shutting off the, the uh, access to the sacraments, so to speak, but like just all of a sudden government control of a religion. But it's voluntarily by the bishops. That's what I mean by Henry VIII. What you saw in England is the bishops, well, not to a man because he had St. John Fisher, but all the other bishops in the Catholic country of England went right along with whatever the government demanded, you know. And so one day, everybody in your neighborhood was Catholic, and that was your church right there, and that was your priest, and that was your bishop and all that. And then the next day, all those people are going to the same church, that's the same priest, same bishop, but none of them are Catholic anymore. It's just like that. And and we're in this, we're not quite to the not Catholic, but we see this extraordinary phenomenon of the era of Russia where the bishops are completely on board. So you even had states like Ohio where, where churches were said to be necessary, necessary, and they still had stuff closed down. Texas, it, it didn't matter. The bishops were going to be on board, way on, more on board than anybody else. See, wait a minute, we have no king. Where's God in that? How, you know, so you have people dying without a second. So you, have, you have people dying... Without, and not getting funerals from the Catholic Church for pity's sake. They could be daily communicants, but they don't they don't write a funeral. I mean, who heard of this stuff before? And here we are. It's absolutely apocalyptic in strictly so called because this is also a, a, a prefiguring in a very clear way of when you know the sacrifice will fail that that, that Daniel talks about. You know. 
when and, and all the all the fathers write about it is at the end of the world the public sacrifice to the mass will will not be available it will be set in hidden places they talk about caves and corners and hidden places and all that but publicly it'll disappear what that's going to look like that's another speculation um, so I'm speculating so we've gone from suffering to this but that's all right uh, I'll offer a speculation on what that may look like. Is it may be a really mutilated? It, it, you probably still have priests saying something that's mass, but it won't. It might not be offered to God the Father. It might be offered to the earth or something. Uh, or you might have you know just put the plant on the altar. We don't know because we've seen something extraordinary that's a premonition of abomination and desolation two years ago with that patchy demon. Uh, the Pope presiding over the thing in, in the Vatican Gardens, where uh, where that, then that witch uh, did all that ra- sh- shaking and rattling and all that, and uh, and put that ring on his finger after she uh, cursed it, and that's symbolic of, of of a marriage, a mystical marriage between the person who has the ring and, and the, the so-called deity. So there's some kind of mystical marriage, like like St. Teresa of Avila had the mystical marriage with our Lord, you know, and that's the top of the uh, uh, when, uh, of the spiritual life. It, I think we saw a visible inversion there. That's, you know, it, it, it's terrible to have to talk like this, but I mean, what do we see? And then, and then on the Feast of the Holy Rosary, Our Lady of Victories, they processed that thing into the, this this idol, into the St. Peter's. And and what's so interesting about this, the Pope did all that, and so you bring this idol in. This is the worst sin. You would think it's just like, oh, isn't that anthropologically interesting? This is first commandment. It's first because it's first. That's God. And you've just insulted God. Like, And who's insulted God? The Pope. Who's the only one that can make reparation? The Pope. Can I make reparation? No. I have to try, but I can't because I don't have I don't have that altitude. There's only one person in the world that can make reparation for this sin, and he's the one that did it. And so the Levites rose up, right? Ha! Huh! That's the difference between us and the Exodus. Who rose up? Individuals, maybe. Bishop Athanasius Schneider. There's some, but globally, what did you see? Crickets. So what does that tell us? That tells us that in some way, Christ isn't the point and the foundation of way, 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 way too many Catholic. It's extraordinary. Look, you know, if if my mom was getting beaten up, you know, I wasn't raised to just think, oh, look, mom's getting beaten up. You you come flying over there. Well, what if they kill you? Well, okay, you got killed. That's our Lord. That's only my mom, and I'm not making light of her, but that's our Lord. Nothing. The cardinals, why do they wear red? You can look that up. The bishops, nothing. So, where's our Lord in all this? I mean, he's still our Lord, I don't mean that, but I mean in terms of the hearts. We are seeing something we have never seen. We are seeing something we have never seen, and it's there for all with eyes to see. Now, if we're seeing something like that, why am I talking about this in the context of suffering? <laughs> because 
there's going to be hell to pay. And I think there already is. What happened right after that? No sooner did they enthrone it, than this flu starts going all over the world. And at the same phenomenon, you have this oligarchy that sees control. We haven't seen since Nimrod a one-world government, and now we have one. It's pretty invisible, but there's no explanation for all the countries in the world doing all the same stupid things, unless there's some pe- a, a group calling the shots. That's the only possible explanation, and it's spiritual. Why? Because the man that can that keeps that actually holds the keys has somehow released things. Whatever barrier there is, it's been released or taken down or whatever. Whatever barrier there was to this kind of thing. Because all these people have been trying to rise up and seize power. You look at just in this past century, you have people like Lenin and Stalin and Mao Zedong and Hitler, these people rising up in Napoleon the century before. So there's this lust because the demons never change and there's men that, that go along with this. There's this lust to dominate and power and get everybody and enslave everyone. It's nothing new in the history of the world. I mean, we talk about Pharaoh and the Exodus. There's all this lust to be the Pharaoh that, that it rises up. Cause it, and, but they've never been able. Since Nimrod, there's never been able to have the world. But when it happened, it happened right after the idolatry in the Vatican. Right after that. So whatever happened up there, somehow that barrier or whatever is removed. Because the Pope is the rock. But whatever he's been plugging has been unplugged. So we have this oligarchy. And you can see some of the faces of these guys, but we don't really know all of them because that's how Masonic type things work. Uh, we don't know all of them. By any, somebody might, but we don't. But in, out of that oligarchy, ultimately they will issue just one ruler, and that'll be the Pharaoh of the world. And that's the Antichrist. And I don't think we're talking a long time from now, years and years from now, because something like this will move fast. I don't, I'm not talking this week or something. I, you know, those, those things are hidden in the mystery of God. But we're not talking like, well, you know, we got another 10 years to get ready. No, we don't. They're genetically modifying mankind right now. Let's talk a little bit about the spiritual meaning of genetically modifying organisms. And then we'll go to men. Are, are obviously, things like Monsanto, there's a, a huge financial uh, uh Benefit for a chemical company to control the food supply. Well, it's Bayer now, but uh, but th- that and also for the oligarchs because when you have the food, you, you got people. You know, as we know, we're all country people here. But uh, so you have that sort of thing. <clears throat> but even more foundationally, there's a spiritual reason the devil can't create. But the closest thing you get to create is to, to kind of get his sort of own species that are are not really. You know, they're not natural. It's unnatural. I mean, that's he's into unnatural sex. He's into unnatural everything. You know, if it can be plastic instead of instead of wood, you know, whatever it might be. Unnatural is better because um, that's devils. Because it's not made by God, you know, and or directly. I mean, obviously God holds it in being. You know, I don't. I'm not making all. That. Anyway, just to make it quick. So the genetically modified organisms. Uh, 
He's got all this GMO food. So he's made it, he's already got the anti-Garden of Eden prepared, and now he's making the anti-Eves and the anti-Adams so they can be ready for the anti-Christ. That's really what's going on. But the GMO people, you're going through a door you can't go back out of. There's no cure for this shot in that sense. Even people that live through it, there's no cure. You've been genetically modified. And so they're speaking out against this, right? Ha! Huh. Let's walk through some of those ideas. So I wrote this thing. I, I, I was, I talked to a lot of people, but I wrote at the beginning of the year, I think it was, I can't remember anymore, like the absolute, uh, it, it, it's just the immorality of, uh, of these, of these shots. And so I, I put a number of arguments in there. And each, the re, I did it in a certain way so that any one of the arguments stands alone. So once you have the standalone argument, even if you didn't grant one of them, there's enough arguments that it stands alone. It's enough to condemn the shot morally because each one of them condemns it, but in different ways. So in the first case, you have the whole, and it's good to see that people are finally saying stuff like this, but you have the whole thing. You can't actually, your body, you don't have dominion over your body. You can't allow yourself to be in an experiment like that, and you certainly can't give a shot like that. or you know, So you can't be like a nurse or a doctor that gives the jab because you can't do that to another human being. And we've recognized this at Nuremberg, but also the Helsinki Accords. In 89, I think, were the last ones where they talk about this kind of stuff. You just can't do this kind of experimentation on people. Uh, so it's immoral. So even in, in the secular world, we know that. You say, well, I was just following orders. Yeah, I know. That's why we're putting the rope around your neck. Right now, instead of saying we're following orders, they say we're following the protocol, but it's the same thing. And in the Third Reich, which, uh, I'm sorry, I'm just going to be blunt. In the Third Reich, which profession was the most highly uh, represented in the party? It was it was the physicians. They were the, the huge percent of the physicians were party members. That's why you had the euthanasia and, and all that, all all the stuff cooperating with Margaret Sanger and all that to get rid of all these useless eaters and and get rid of the, the mentally retarded and so forth. It's it's not really an anti-Semitic thing. The Jews were late late in the game. They got sucked into the thing. That's I'm not denying that, but that's not how it started at all. It started just like a, 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 a Planned Parenthood thing. That's how it started, and. And they got sucked in later, but the Slavs were sucked in early. So it, mankind was div- divided into categories, you know. They were the overlords, uh, the Aryans, and so forth. And and then you had sort of the, the middle class, and then you had the people that had to go. And gypsies, the Jews were put in that category, as I say later on. Um, but the, the, uh, the mentally defective and so forth, all the, all, and they started with those kind of people. Let's get rid of the people in the asylums and the... And, uh, the, the homes for the mentally retarded and so forth will just kill them all, you know. So you had this sort of phenomenon. So you you have this, this sort of thing uh, the, the, right now, but so you can't do those. We knew this. We, we, we've known this. And how, how many times do we have to be reminded of this, you know? Uh, so we can have all this propaganda about the shot and all that stuff goes out the window. Um, so you can't do it. And I quoted, you can look up any moral mania, but in, in Henry Davis, the sixth edition, 1949, he talks about this, that you can't use people. He uses the word corpus vile, but it, it means skinny pigs. So it's, it's immoral. And so you can't do that at that level. Immoral. And, uh, and it's, and I think, I don't have the catechism, but I think it's paragraph 2295. I don't have a catechism, but, uh, 
in the New Catechism. I want to say paragraph 2295, it talks about this. So you might want to suggest to people in church they could open up their catechism and look at it, including the guys of the callers, they might want to read it sometime. I'm sounding sarcastic, but I mean, sorry. I'm, I, I'm not sorry for sounding sarcastic. Number two, mutilation. I don't know when we don't talk about this because they've completely dropped the ball on organ transplant. And the reason they've dropped the ball is because they've allowed themselves to think that brain death is death. Death means the soul leaves the body. Brain dead people aren't dead at all. They're just hurt, very badly hurt. But they're sitting there. They're they're if you if you keep them ventilated and all that, their wounds will heal. They can breathe. You know, there's a brain, a woman that was declared dead who gave birth to kids six months later. Well, the next time you have a cow that dies and, and, and calves out six months later, I'd like to hear about it, you know. I mean, you know, she's out there on the bone pile. Oh, look, you know, we got to go pull that calf. I mean, it, but this and people could say that. You can't anoint, the somebody's been dead for six months, you can't anoint them. I mean, hello, hello, but nobody's paying attention. So I don't know what's going on with that. So it's, but this mutilation to change your genetic code, to, to even potentially change your your genome like this, is way more of a mutilation than anything Bruce Jenner's done. And what he's done is super morally sinful. But it's only you know it's pretty superficial. You know, you you pay somebody to you know to to make you look like a woman, but you're still a man. You just have been mutilated. Uh, well, all of a sudden, it's the most profound mutilation. You're changing all your genetic information, your, your genome and all in your cells. I mean, hello. So that, that Luke Montagnier, so people sometimes do it. The guy who won the Nobel Prize he's for fighting HIV, he's a virologist. He's like, just read what he has to say. Sometimes people say it's not the science, but science is some big, you know. So first place, you can't uh, you can't give or take the shot. Second place is mutilation that you can't permit. Third place, it's using babies. You killed babies for it. I mean, do you really need a priest to sit here and tell you you can't murder babies and use it? So I got so tired of hearing about this, I wrote something called Moral Theology for Four-Year-Olds. It goes like this. Father, hey Johnny, do you think we can kill a baby and chop it up and use the parts to keep us from getting sick? Johnny's four-year-old son, crying, no, Daddy, no. Don't talk like that. Father. Hey, Johnny, what if we have somebody else chop up the baby? Then can we use the parts to keep us from getting sick? Little kid bawling by then. Stop it, Daddy. What's wrong with you? Moral of the story. Make the kid a bishop. I wished it was funny. But a four-year-old can understand this. There is one really worthwhile thing that some bishops put together. It's in Christ's Magazine. One place I know it was published in English on December 12th, Feast of Our Lady Guadalupe of 2020. And it's Cardinal Pujats, the different bishops of Kazakhstan, including Athanasius Schneider and Bishop Joseph Strickland of Tyler, Texas. So you had five bishops in the world <laughs> that... Uh, that, that got up there and, and said how it is, and they, they wrote about it. So that's really, really worthwhile um, to do that. But the rest of them somehow have decided it's okay. Now, fear, even grave fear, does not remove your will. 
So everybody that is willing to take a jab where they know that there were fetal babies, you know, that's fetal tissue, that babies were used in the preparation of this, is willing to participate in a human sacrifice and use it in some way to make them feel better. In this case, to protect them from a flu. So the difference between us and the Aztecs is our priests wear white lab coats and do these things not on big temples in public. That's the difference. And the bishops are on board. And I start with the Pope. So, and people say, how could he be the Pope? Well, that's the horror of it. How could Caiaphas be the high priest? I'm sorry he was. How could Annas be the high priest? I'm sorry they were. You know, how could Aaron be the high priest? I'm sorry he was. This is, it's just something, we've seen it before in Scripture. We just haven't seen, you know, like, oh, well, that's interesting. You know, here here we are. So here we sit with this kind of incredible phenomenon, and it's not being called out. Or when it is, it's being, you know, people are jumping to the wrong conclusions and jumping overboard and all that. Uh, you know, we have to ride this thing out. I, you know, we have to be faithful to our Lord and do what He wants. So we have this. So that's the third one. So you have to go through them again. I'll, I'll get to another one here in a sec. So you, you can't give or take the shot because that you can't allow that kind of human experimentation. You can't do that. Number two is you can't have that kind of mutilation. Number three is, are you serious? You can't, you, you can't, either we're for, either we're pro-life or we're not. Either we can, we're for killing babies or we're not. There's not some middle ground. It's not like you can be half pregnant, you know. You're either pregnant or you're not. Either you're for baby killing or you're not. You're for baby killing if you're for taking a shot like this. That's There's no, no, there's no middle ground. Well, I'm really scared I'll lose my job. You're for baby killing. I mean, there's no middle ground. And uh, and then you have... Uh, just say if that was your kid, huh? If that was your sister, would you lose your job? If it was your kid, would you be willing to lose your job? Okay, you know. So because we've lost the idea that that's my brother, that's my neighbor. We are in a pagan environment, and that's one of the roles of these distancing and masks and all that. It's instead it's to to flip the thing from what remained of a Christian approach to like. That stranger is my neighbor. That's somebody that I, you know, no, it's that stranger is dangerous to me. He might breathe on me. I might die, you know. Well, when, when hasn't that been true? I, I can tell you exactly when it wasn't true. Right before the fall. Ever since then, it's been true. That guy might be dangerous. He might breathe on me. I might die. Blah, blah, blah. You know, nothing's new like that. Um, so we go to that. So then, then you go from that to uh, the last thing, which I think is the most important argument. I'll make one more at the end of this, but I think the most important argument. I was reading Thomas Melvenda. Now, for years I looked for this. He's a Dominican that lived in the 1500s and the early 1600s. He was a super brainiac. He was the, uh, the secretary of Cardinal Baronius, is a famous, uh, a famous church historian and so forth. And he wrote like, 
the book, the scholastic work on the Antichrist. And it's, you know, you know, I found it. It's 1,300 pages. You can get it. It's on Google Books. So, so they scanned it. I have to say, so finally I can say something good about Google. So I will. There, I'm done. But that being said, it's 1,300 pages um, of basically exhaustive research. He took like 20 years reading everything the Greeks and Latins wrote about the Antichrist. So he'll say something and just citation after citation. Well, I'm reading in a commentary he had on one particular line in Scripture, but I didn't notice the line. I was reading the commentary because I go, wait a minute, this is interesting. So he's talking about the Roman emperors, uh, the pagan Roman emperors, that really are lusting to have people in communion with their sacrifices. So he talks about Galerius and Julian, uh, Julian the Apostate. And what they do is, is, is they take stuff from the sacrifices. In some cases, water, some takes blood, some takes meat. So the meat, like, they'll throw it into the fountain. So if anybody goes to dip any water out in town there, they, they're in communion with the sacrifice. They'll have their, their, their guys go around and sprinkle all the food in the markets. They'll do this, that, and other thing. So he's just talking about these different cases, like Constantinople, I think it was a Saint Theodore, that had a vision and told everybody, so they were, he said, cook, cook wheat, fry wheat and oil, and you can live on that while this is going on. And so Julian Apostate doing Antioch, they're doing Constantinople, different places, you know. But you go, well, that's interesting, because it, it, these are different ones doing the same exact phenomenon, and you realize that's exactly what's going on right now except they're doing it with a needle. And and they're trying to get everybody to be in communion with their sacrifice. and Because that's what they want, everybody to, to, to join in their sacrifice. That's the way devils are. What's interesting is the commentary was Apocalypse thirteen seventeen, And nobody could buy and sell unless they had the mark of the beast. And that was what the commentary was. And I go, wow, now that's super interesting. Because some of them, like... Bishop, the, in the, the bishops I talk to, they say they're not saying it, but this may be a prefigurement or looting or have something to do with the mark of the beast. And I don't think it is the mark of the beast. I want to underline that, but I think it may be an initiation stage or something. I like as, as baptism is, is the confirmation because now you're in communion with the sacrifice. And go. So the spiritual reason. That's one of the reasons they want. People think it's a legal reason why everybody needs to get the jab. No, I think it's spiritual. Everybody should be in communion. Uh, that's what they want, and, and that's that's how devils are. Devils don't change; they're always the same. Uh, so, so I, there's one other uh, there's one other moral reason not to get the jab, and that's just it's a moral sin against prudence. I mean, seriously, read the statistics. Just, <laughs> just look at the VAERS data the government releases, and they say, yeah, okay, it's it's you're actually more likely to get hit by a meteorite or something like that. Who knows? I mean, I'm being somewhat facetious there, but not much. Uh, it, it, I think lightning is more dangerous. Um, and, you know, good grief. But here we are, because we're being governed by fear. We don't. Christ is not the end. To go back to that, now all that being said, what's really the end of all this? If we really believe that Christ is God and that he loves us and that if we love him, we'll keep his commandments... Then it's really clear what we have to do is is be pleasing to Him. We live in a time where it's getting more and more dramatic, and being pleasing to Him is going to have a higher and higher cost. But we're not the first ones in that sense to go down that path. That's what all the martyrs are. And when you look at the slaughter that's been going on over the past 20 centuries of Christian martyrs, 
you know, there we are. We don't have to even be worried about that because people start getting scared. I couldn't do that. Well, of course you couldn't because it's not your day to be martyred. You get the grace to be martyred on the day that you get to be martyred. You don't have to worry. And everything, we go back to the Exodus. What did it look like? Here comes Pharaoh. Our back's the ocean. God specializes in these kind of things. We don't know what's going to happen to us individually. Collectively, it doesn't look good at all. It's going to be bad and, and go from bad to worse. I mean, that's not that's not a very brilliant observation. You can just see what's going to But we don't have to worry because no matter what we say, all right, I'm going to die, so I want to die well and spend eternity in heaven. And if I do all this right, I don't have to go to purgatory, which is a really cool idea. And so that means I'm going to have to suffer, but I have to suffer anyway. And uh, if I want to grow, grow in an interior life, I have to suffer. I want to go through all my purifications now. So that's just going to increase my happiness. And the ultimate happiness I can have is being a saint and a great saint. So all this suffering is good. It doesn't mean it's not suffering. But then I can see it for what it is, and it will make me happy, even if it, does, it doesn't quit hurting. Now, what's going to be the number one problem with people? They're not detached. This is what causes a lot of unnecessary suffering. They're not detached. They're too attached to this, that, or the other thing. And, and, and by that I don't, you know, like they're, they're attached in a disordered way to people they love. Well, of course we should love people. Being detached doesn't mean you're like some Spockian robot that walks around going, I have no feelings. Uh, what being detached is, is you want what's best for them. And you want what's best for me. You know, you, you say that to yourself. So whatever's most pleasing to God, and I'm, and I'll, I'll I'll trust God with that. And then you can love them more because you love them in Christ. You don't worry about it. You love them in Christ. But you get detached from different things, um, whether it's your business, whether it's where you live, whatever it might be. People are attached, especially if you detach from your emotions, don't let yourself get led around by your emotions. You're going to have emotions. They're not bad. But it's bad if they're leading you instead of you leading them. And so we want to be detached from them in that way. And especially important right now is fear, because how many people are doing things because they're afraid? Because that's how this whole thing is being worked. There's constant propaganda in various ways, and they're trying to freak people out. And it's, they're doing a good job. I mean, you have to give points to the other side, but you know they got devils coaching them. Um, so people get afraid. What am I going to do? I don't know what you're going to do. I don't know what I'm going to do. You know, I, we we have to trust God for that. What's going to happen? I don't know. But God, God's in charge. Of all none of this has escaped God's notice. God is not on a sailboat somewhere. This is God. He fits the job description. He knows everything. If this is happening, it's because he's permitting it. If it's permitted, it's because it's what's best from the heavenly point of view. So whatever we're going to go through is going to be what's best from the heavenly point of view. So if that means I get tortured to death, well, we started this talk this morning with St. Dismas, and that wasn't random. We should really meditate on him and pray to him. He wouldn't be St. Dismas if he hadn't been nailed to a cross. He might just be burning in hell. I don't mean anything reverent, St. Dismas. But who, where would he have ended up if he hadn't got captured by the Romans who meant business and, and, you know, and then got the, the Ro- special Roman treatment and, uh, nailed the cross and then his legs broke so he'd suffocate quick. That was, and he went right straight to, you know, to, he went right straight to the limbo of the Fawz, which was paradise because our Lord was there. 
Lord showed up. So he's he's like the first canonized saint in that sense. Canonized, but look, that's what we want. Who cares if we get out of here? This is a test. This is a test. That's all life is. It's a big test, but it's a test for eternity. I want to pass. And we have to keep that in mind. And we have to keep reminding ourselves, if we get scared, no, God really loves me. And if this is it, the, the people of Israel, of Israel were backed up against the ocean. It looked grim for them. And he did what he wanted to do with them. And then he took care of them all the way, even though it was all impossible. Nothing's impossible for God. He's taken care of me. He's let me be a Catholic. He's let me receive the Blessed Sacrament. He's let me know him. And he just wants me to be happy with him forever. And so I just need to relax and not worry. And especially not let my fear get ahead of me. You might get afraid. But don't let it lead you around. Pray for it, go to, you know, to get it back under control. Don't let your passions control you. And, and just look for what is most pleasing to God. Because that's what this is all going to be at the end. What is most pleasing to God? If I do what's most pleasing to God, I'll get out of this the way He wants me to. But it ain't going to be a lie. <laughs> we'll end at that point.